All right, and now we're going to uh, go into our reading for today. This reading comes from Genesis 24, 57 through 67. They said, we will call the girl and ask her. And they called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? She said, I will. So they sent away their sister Rebecca and her nurse along with Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebecca and said to her, may you, our sister, become thousands of myriads. May your offspring gain possession of the gates of their foes. Then Rebecca and her maids rose up, mounted the camels, and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. Now Isaac had come from Birlahi Roy and was settled in the Negeb. Isaac went out in the evening to walk in the field, and looking up, he saw camels coming. And Rebekah looked up, and when she saw Isaac, she slipped quickly from the camel and said to the servant, who is the man over there walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent. He took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Hey y'all, um, I'm Jonah, they, them, theirs, lead pastor here at Zao MKE Church, and we're in the middle of a series called It's Complicated. <laughs> um, we started this series actually in part because I have a pretty consistent habit of turning literally every scripture text we encounter into a case for uh, liberation by way of protest in the streets and we were trying hard to pivot into a different way of encountering scripture trying to spend time in relationship and love and intimacy in a different sort of way and so we're in the middle of a series on relationship reclaiming relationships of the bible for uh for queer love for uh for women um, through an anti-racist lens and all of this is incredibly important it is really hard for me not to throw all of that completely out the window right now, uh, given what's going on in our community, given the time that I got to spend in the streets um, chanting and, uh, and demonstrating and demanding liberation, the ways that people are uprising across the country on behalf of specifically George Floyd in this moment, but also every black life that was lost, every black life that was murdered intentionally by a white supremacist system, which is evil, that we as followers of Jesus, as studiers of the word are demanded to get out in the streets and oppose with our very bodies. It's complicated and in the midst of that, love still matters. In the midst of the fight in the street, where we go for comfort, where we go to feel loved and held, where we go to seek joy, it matters. And so we're not going to abandon this text today. 
but I'm not going to be able to stop myself from talking about rioting. So today, in our love series, we have Rebecca and Isaac and rioting. We're going to begin with Rebecca and Isaac, and I'm going to try and keep myself to time because I know that the rioting bit is going to be the part where I really uh, don't care about the clock anymore. But when the world is on fire, where do we go for love? Who do we turn to? Who journeys with us into the wilderness, into the new land? Who is with us when we are alone in a world not made for us? Who is with black folks in a white culture and white world? Today, we encounter a story of ethnic identity, of the clan of Abraham in the Canaanite world. And though we cannot map on our uh, systems of racial identity and oppression, we can learn from it what it means to make choices about, uh, about who to love and what kind of protection and support we need when we are encountering cross-ethnic and cross-cultural space. So in this It's Complicated story, we have Rebecca and Isaac, but we'll begin with Abraham. Abraham had been given a promise by God, an invitation to leave his hometown, leave his culture, his ethnic space, and go into a new land. So he left his home and his people, and he was an outsider among the Canaanites. God had promised him a big family, a long line, and he had said yes. He wanted what God had had promised to him, but he knew that he would have to risk everything to go get it. He would have to leave everything he knew, and he would have to encounter cultures and peoples who would reject him. But he wanted that, and so he said yes. In Abraham's old age, as he was nearing the end of his life, he lost his partner, Sarah. They also had a very hashtag, it's complicated relationship. And so we don't know what he was experiencing at the end of that. But the woman that he had chosen to do life with, the partner that he was with in this world of unknown, the person who shared his family history, his culture, his identity, his, his ethnic um, sense of self in this world of other, was gone. He wanted a, a partner for his son, Isaac. And at this point, arranged marriages were really the norm. There may have even been an assumption within the family that Isaac, having grown up in this Canaanite space, would marry a Canaanite woman. But Abraham wanted for Isaac what he had had, a partner from his own people. He wanted Isaac to have that sense of family and kinship that is chosen but also historic that is about choosing family from a familial shared identity. He didn't want his son to go back home, and he made that very clear. He said, I don't want you to go back to get married. I want you to keep going forward in this new land, in this new space. You need to continue to be a foreigner among these people, but you need support. You need someone from your people to love you and to hold you. So Abraham sent a servant, an emissary, and he said to this servant who had been in his family and in his clan for his whole life, 
will you promise me that you'll go to my country, to my people, and find Isaac a wife? The servant, uh, anticipating, interestingly, a sense of agency that we know Rebecca will have, says, what if she doesn't want to come? And Abraham says, if she doesn't want to come, then I release you from my promise. But there was a trust that God had provided for Isaac, someone from his kin who would accompany him into this space where he was an outsider. So the servant agreed, said, okay, made the promise. He gathered up many riches because Abraham had done well in this new land and had uh, gold and jewelry and camels. And so he gathered all of this up, the servant, and went to Abraham's hometown. The servant was wondering, this will be an invitation for this young woman to leave her ethnic identity and her people in some significant ways and go then alone into a new land to meet her new partner. How will I know who's willing to do this? How do I know? He decides to go down to the well, to the spring of water in the community, which is so often associated with marriage and proposals and new life, because as we know, Miniwachoni, water is life. And he goes down to the well, and as he approaches, he talks to God, and he says, God, I know that you have sent me, so how do I know? How do I know? And he decides, he'll ask for water. He'll ask the young women for water, and if a young woman he asks for water offers back to water his camels, that'll be a sign. That must be the one. Miguel de la Torre, in his commentary on Genesis, notes that this is no small task. A single camel can drink 20 to 30 gallons of water in 10 minutes, and they have 10. So this would be two to 300 gallons of water that a young woman would say, I'll grab that for you. This is a huge task, and it shows that not only is the person who volunteers for it generous, but also strong and capable. And so when he goes, and he goes to the well, he sees Rebecca, and he asks her for a sip of water, and she volunteers to water all of his camels. Rebecca, strong, independent Rebecca, is now volunteering to make hundreds of trips, gallon after gallon, to water the camels of a stranger. He gives her jewelry. Will Gaffney in The Womanist Midrash notes that she doesn't seem surprised by this. She just accepts it, of course. She's worthy of that. But he gives her all sorts of jewelry and gifts and then asks, will you take me to your father's house? Who do you belong to? Who are your people? She says, I'll take you to my mother's house where I live, and who I am is my grandmother's granddaughter. She is clear on who she is and where the power lies in her sense of identity and her people, and her people are women. Ultimately, this whole negotiation, it eventually involves her brother and her father, but she's the one who gets to call the shots. 
At one point, the servant is like, hey, if we're going down with this, we better go soon. I really want to get back to my master. He may be dead by now. I want to go. And Rebecca's father and brother say, wait 10 days. Rebecca's grandmother says, let's ask Rebecca. And Rebecca's like, we're out. I'm going now. I'm making this choice. Will Gaffney, again, in the Womanist Midrash, notes how many verbs there are in this story and how so many of them are Rebecca's. She calls Rebecca a bold matriarch in every sense of the word. She is a woman who chooses. She is a woman who acts. She does. And she chooses to leave the kinship of her hometown, to find her kin in a land that is other. She chooses to go into space that is not culturally hers, to accompany someone who is hers, to be together in this task. This story is a story of a strong-ass woman in a time where that is unusually um, difficult (laughs) to be. In a time where the systems can't afford women a lot of rights, and she takes them anyway over and over again. When she approaches, Gaffney notes that she observes Isaac and asks after him. She is a woman who still has enough agency to look at men and ask about them. She doesn't act like someone who has already given away to someone, but someone who has choices still, even as they approach. And she wants to know about Isaac when they meet. They come together, again in a matrilineal space in Isaac's mother's tent. And it says that Isaac loved Rebecca. This is the first time that that verb to love in a romantic sense is introduced into the Bible. Rebecca is loved, is worthy of love. And in receiving that love, Rebecca offers to Isaac comfort. He is experiencing the loss of other kin, his mother. And he grieves that connection to his family, to his home in a land that is not his, even though he's lived in it his whole life. But the loss of that person, of that kin, is huge. And in meeting Rebecca, his new kin, his partner in life moving forward, his his partner who comes from his place, his people, to be with him, he is comforted. This is a story about a strong woman, but it is also a story about ethnic identity and why when alone in a new land that's not for you, where you are an outsider, you might choose a partner as someone who shares your ethnic experience, your location, your culture, your family, your history. Now, this story in the Bible eventually becomes prescriptive, and there are laws that forbade Jewish men from marrying outside of the tribe. And that's really messed up and wrong, and we need to critique that, and we will. When we get to Ruth in particular, an outsider who marries in and shows what an intercultural, inter-ethnic marriage looks like and how beautiful and blessed that is, we will look at that. But for now, before it all gets messed up in law, 
Let's dwell on the beauty of choosing a partner within your own ethnic identity as you are called to live in a predominant culture that is not yours. As I mentioned, we can't map one for one our own current um, structures of racial oppression or racial identity onto this text. Abraham, Isaac, and Rebecca are not black and the Canaanites are not white. Abraham, Isaac, and Rebecca are not Latinx immigrants and the Canaanites are not white Americans. But how could this story speak to the love and beauty of, for instance, black folks immersed in white culture choosing to navigate that space with one another? Or immigrants in America choosing not to assimilate, at least in their marriages? What does it mean to bring a sense of home with you, even into a strange land? To choose family that comes from you, even as you venture into new spaces? And what does it mean for Rebecca, called out of a place of familiarity into a new land that may reject her, even as God promises her blessing on blessing and her people send her forth blessing on blessing on blessing? White folks, I think there's something in here for us, too, about moving beyond our ethnic places, about intentionally bringing others with us, about the shared richness of what we have gained by leaving spaces of white comfort and fragility, and bringing our kin alongside us while sharing the riches and abundance of humility that comes with it. For now, though, let us not meditate on the white experience of this text but on black love. We'll finish our reflection on Rebecca and Isaac with some words from Taylor, speaking about her own experience of choosing and longing for and celebrating black love. Hey family. Uh, Cameron and Jonah asked me to share a little bit about why Black love is so important to me. I honestly don't think that prior to them asking me, I had ever given it a ton of thought. Um, but I did some reflecting and sat down and just kind of wrote about Black love. And this is what I came up with. Uh, the relationships and familial structures that I look at with the most admiration, pride, and desire to emulate have always been those of Black love. It's something I've always wanted. It's something that has always felt good and natural to my body and spirit. It feels innate. Black love is a safe place and common ground. Despite the beautiful diversity of Black people and our different lives, Black people feel like home to me. There is an ever-present familiarity. In Black love, I don't feel the need to be respectable, to code switch, to be a representative for my race, to explain why that shitty thing that the person at the bar said was racist. It just was. My partner, my black partner, just gets it. Not from a place of empathy, but from a place of shared experience. When I come home to my black partner, I am me in my truest essence, mask off, hair down, me. I feel understood. Black love is an act of resistance. Historically, there is generational trauma around Black love and families. As a result of forced separation during slavery, unjust mass incarceration, police brutality, and more, Black people, and subsequently Black love, have faced much opposition. 
we live in a time where uh, black people are told that we're less than, less worthy of joy, less worthy of love, less worthy of respect and humanity. My black love stands in direct defiance of that. When my black partner and I are bursting at the seams laughing, when we are holding each other, when we are affirming and honoring each other in our words and actions, when we are planning a prosperous life together, it feels radical. It feels long fought for. It feels like a middle finger to anything that says we're not enough. I feel deep gratitude to be in black love. My black love is tender, warm, and comfy like my favorite sweater. My black love is unapologetic, powerful, and resilient like a revolution. My black love is holy and good. Thank you, Taylor, for that word of truth and of gospel this morning. And now with y'all's permission, I'm gonna pivot to riots. <laughs> I love the streets, and if you don't know where I and Zhao stand on protesting and on black lives, then welcome, because you are new here. We, as a community, are called to be in the streets. We have been called to be in our homes because there is a deadly virus, and even so, things have mounted to where some of us are still called to go into the streets, into that deadly viral space in order to protest because it is so critical to the gospel. And I just wanted to take a moment to reflect on some of the conversations that are happening right now as black folks in particular are leading the way into the streets, into liberation, into demands for justice. There is a big conversation about whether people are doing it right. There's a big conversation about tactics and reasonability and respectability. There are a lot of people very worried about looting. There are a lot of people who are worried about violence. But I wanna tell you something about protests. There is no such thing as an acceptable protest. It doesn't exist. If a protest is acceptable, it is status quo, and it is doing nothing. There is no such thing as an acceptable protest. Protest is fundamentally about disruption. It has to destroy something, break something down, dismantle something. And that is not comfortable, and that is not easy, and it doesn't feel right, because it's not right within the system we have. That's the point. And the level of, of expression correlates to the level of what is going on. When you see burning in the streets, it is because there has already been burning in the streets. You just didn't see it. People scale. We have a concept in community organizing called scaling, scaling tactics. You don't start at the top. Every planned organizing action I ever, I ever was a part of began with a letter. Dear so-and-so, please kindly refrain from being evil and wrong. We worded it differently, but that's the basic template. And you start with a request, but you know what doesn't work? Letters. I mean, sometimes they do, and when they do, great. It ends there. But if dialogue worked, no one would take a knee. But it doesn't, so people take a knee. And if voting worked, no one would protest. But it hasn't, so people are protesting. 
And if taking the sidewalks worked, no one would take the highway. But taking the sidewalks isn't working, so we're taking down the highway and shutting it down. And if anything else worked, no one would be burning down police stations, but nothing else has worked. Dr. King, for all the folks, all the white moderate folks who love to throw his quotes around, Dr. King not only said that rioting is the language of the unheard, but he went on to explain about looting and about why that gets under the skin of white Americans so deeply. He accuses white America of valuing property more than people, of experiencing the destruction of property as violence because we are so much more attached as a culture, we are trained to be so much more attached, and in particular, white folks are so much more attached to the value of material wealth than the value of living, breathing, until they are not children of God. It is the children of God that matter. And I don't care to talk about the things that matter less than that right now. I hear it. I hear the anxiety that not all of the destruction here is holy, that not all of it is, as I believe most of it is, righteous and good and profound and prophetic, that some of it is outside agitators, a phrase used, by the way, repeatedly to describe Dr. King. But sometimes there are actual outside, we'll not call them agitators, we will call them assholes, we will call them what they are, white supremacists, that there are far white far-right white supremacists who are using this opportunity to incite violence, who are infiltrating legitimate protests and raining chaos down on people. That's real. And many of my colleagues have begun to name that for what it is, the devil. That the devil finds a way into beautiful and holy things and twists them. That is the devil at work when white supremacists come and invade these protests and take them for their own means. But you know where else I see the devil in this? I see the devil in white moderates being willing to be distracted from what is the real issue at hand, to get on tangents and conversations about the value of looting and rioting, telling people to do something else instead. There has to be a better way. There isn't. We are here right now because there isn't, because the better ways weren't working, didn't work. And we have to care more about Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd because nothing else deserves our attention right now. And nothing else was getting our attention. And maybe we just have to leave it there for today. But I will see you in the streets. Will you pray with me? God, hear us, hear our hearts, speak truth back to us, let us not be distracted, let our focus not waver from what matters, your beautiful, black, beloved. May we remain faithful, may we remain clear, may we do your holy work of disruption. Amen.